0: and Kent for reading to us, 1 Corinthians chapter two, if you go back there. The title for this message that you have in your bulletin is The Testimony of God, which is mentioned in verse one, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Corinth is a special book, First and Second Corinthians. Uh, in Paul's ministry, as he began this, Corinth was a place of open doors, of blessing. He started this church on his first missionary journey. We have the story of it in Acts 18. And then uh, on his third missionary journey, while staying in Ephesus for uh, a number of years, he writes two letters back to this church. What's interesting is he writes more to this church than any other church in the New Testament. And and these two letters alone become uh, more uh, uh, information, a longer text uh, than any other uh, message to the church. So it's uh, quite unique. But, of course, one of the reasons for his writing is there were a lot of problems uh, with the church and uh, maybe uh, where God is doing a lot of things, Satan also does a lot of things. Uh, When you look back to chapter 1 and verse 11, Uh, It has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them who are the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. One is saying, I am of this person, and another, I am of that person. Or if you go over to chapter 3, and he, he said, Brethren, I could not speak unto you as spiritual, but unto carnal, even as babes in Christ, I fed you with milk and not with meat. And not only those kind of issues in the church, but immorality in the church a problem over the Lord's Supper in the church spiritual gifts the right use and the wrong use of spiritual gifts and then of resurrection in chapter 15 and that's just in the first book and so there are a lot to deal with uh in this uh in this church so I think as we look at the first five verses of chapter two I see Paul recounting the early days Going back to the days when he came to Corinth and first preached to them and how God blessed and how they were a happy people and a faithful people. Uh, and you, you have you remember Paul coming to Corinth and finding uh, Aquila and Priscilla and uh, so he met with them, and, and since he was a tent maker, uh, he led them to the Lord and then practiced that craft while he was there. And then there was a time where Justice opened his house, and so they all went into Justice's house to meet as a church. A lot of just good things happening in those early days. So here's a question I have for you. Were you more excited about your faith when you were first saved than you are today? If you ever think about that, I think back to the days I got saved. I can remember the day I got saved, uh, even at just 11 years old, and I can remember the early days of uh, uh, trying to serve the Lord. Were Were there times of greater excitement in your life and things that seemed to be a closer walk with the Lord than there are today? And if that's true we ask ourselves what happened Uh, what happened in our lives is it just a matter of time are we tired are we kind of worn down Uh, has the shine kind of uh, gone away Uh, Barbara played that song as you noted Kent how long has it been how long has it been since you felt like that with the Lord And I think maybe that Paul starts this long letter of a lot of correction, a lot of uh, dealing with problems with, let's go back to the beginning. Let's remember what it was like when all we had was the testimony of God. And that's what I preached among you. That's all I knew among you was just the testimony of God. And maybe what has happened in our own lives is that maybe our testimony that is, of me personally, has become more important than God's testimony. Maybe we've kind of put ourselves on that throne rather than on God. You know, uh, when you first get married, they call it a honeymoon, don't they? And that honeymoon period, uh, you know, everything's just perfect. You call each other honey and sweetheart uh, and, you know, you talk with each other like this, and, oh, yes, honey, I'd do anything for you. And then what happens 40 years later? Well, I won't use those words, but I, but I mean, you know, uh, kind of the newness, the honey part of the moon <laughs> has worn away. Well, maybe that can happen also uh, in the Christian life. To to the Hebrews, the writer in chapter ten said, "Call to remembrance the former days when you were first enlightened. You you joyfully took uh, uh, the spoiling of your goods. You were happy to be persecuted for Christ. You spoke out for the Lord in those days. Do you remember that? Well, I see here, and you have in your bulletin uh, these five thoughts from the first five verses." that uh, Paul encourages uh, the church to remember the testimony of God. And here are five ways, I would call them maybe, to keep the testimony of God fresh in your life. Here's how to have that honeymoon period of of spiritual life as well. And so you notice that I have these, these statements to declare it, to know it, to fear it, to demonstrate it, and even to stand on it. But let me uh, point out, I think it's interesting, too, that Paul also gives you a negative each time. Not this, but this. I didn't speak like this. I spoke like this. This isn't what we did, but this is what we did. And so we always contrast it. So notice, first of all, if you want to keep the, the testimony of God fresh in your life, declare it. I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, not with flowery language. I wasn't trying to flatter you. I had no ulterior motive when I did this, but simply declaring unto you the testimony of God. Now, the, the, uh, you know I like to define words, and we'll do a little bit of that this morning. The word declare is, is a little bit more than just preach. Uh, the gospel is the Angaleon, the good news. But here it kind of means to press the message a little bit, the kata angelion. I, pre- I declared it to you. I kind of put it in your face, we might say, today. And Paul was that kind of a preacher on his first missionary journey in Acts 13, 38 He uses this word also, be it known unto you, therefore, he's preaching up in Galatia, men and brethren, that through this man is preached, he uses this, declared, I put it in your face, the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could be justified, cannot be justified by the law of Moses. I preached unto you, I was bold in my witness, I spoke outrightly to you. Do you remember that time in your Christian life? Paul remembers this in his first missionary journey. You know, sometimes it's easy, it's easy to sometimes to mention your faith, to mention the gospel. It's another thing to kind of pressure somebody with it. It's another thing to kind of press the message, which is what this word means, you know, when you were first saved, maybe you could do that. I, I remember the first person I ever led to the Lord. I was a teenager, We started going to a church, a youth group that believed in soul winning. And uh, I had grown up with these two brothers, Stephen and Scott, and we used to go ice skating on the ponds in the wintertime at, on, on the university campus there. And uh, the lights were on, you know, on the sidewalks and everything, it was kind of pretty, but we'd play hockey or we'd just play tag and skate around. And I was so excited about Learning that you could lead someone to Christ that I got a hold of Steve who was a little bit younger than I was, you know, so I could beat him up if he didn't do it. But, you know, maybe I thought so. I don't know. I remember getting him to kneel with me in the snowbank on the pond where we were ice skating and accepted the Lord as a savior. I mean, because I I wanted to see him get saved. Now, sometimes we can get a little overboard on that, I suppose, but I'm talking about there's a time when, when we just want to press the gospel because this person needs it, and you have a burden for lost souls. You know when when you press the message a little bit when, when a cult person knocks on your front door don't you you talk to him a little differently than you talk to your neighbor when he knocks on your front door, right? You're kind of pressing the message because you have nothing to lose at that point. I mean, you know, that's why they're there for a religious reason. And, hey, you're going to press back on it, and you're going to say some things like that. Well, why don't we press the message a little more often with people who need to hear it? You know, I I had a neighbor named Fred who only lived next to us for about a year, a little over a year. Fred uh, moved into the house before. The people who lived there had lived there long before we lived there. And, and uh, I got a couple opportunities to speak to him, but not very often. Fred moved in, and he lived by himself. He was an older man. And I found out quickly he was a Roman Catholic. So in the first year that he lived there, you know, with your neighbor, you're trying to build up a rapport and this and that. And I had, had been able to have two conversations with Fred about faith and, a, and finding out that he was a Catholic and what he kind of actually believed, and I wasn't getting very far. And he was satisfied with what he believed; that was fine. So it came time Fred sold the house and was moving out. And uh, uh, he was there cleaning the house for the last time. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to have another chance to talk to Fred. I'm going to go talk to him. So I went over and went in the house. It was empty. He was sweeping up the last few things. That was all. He's getting ready to leave. And I said, Fred, I know. I've talked to you before about this, but I just want to say one more time. And I tried to press the gospel with him. Fred didn't care. He was happy with his Catholic religion. He didn't need any more than that. But at least I went away saying I I gave it my best shot. You know, at least I I tried uh, to get him one more time to see the gospel. Who else is going to witness to him? Where else in his life is he ever going to hear the gospel if he doesn't live next to a Christian who, who needs to witness to him? Well, I, I recall, you know, in the scripture, in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, Paul, or 2 Corinthians 5, Paul will say, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we, what? Persuade men. Or Agrippa, when Paul was standing before the king, saying, You've almost persuaded me, Paul, to be a Christian. And that persuasion, I think, is what he's talking When I came to Corinth, I declared unto you the gospel. I was ready to give it, and that's what I did. So I'm just saying one way to recover that freshness in our faith is to be a little more bold, to be able to declare what we believe. Secondly, know it, I say. He says in verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Here's the negative first. I don't want to know anything else. Now, now I don't think Paul here is, uh, Paul's not advocating ignorance. (laughs) He's not saying don't know anything, don't study, don't read, don't, you know. He's just saying when it comes to the important things in life, nothing is as important as this. I don't want to beat around the bush and talk about everything else there is to talk about and not get around to this. This is the important thing. This fact that Jesus Christ is God's son and he was crucified for you, that's what I want to talk about. And so he did. He wanted the knowledge of the cross to be there. What did he say in chapter 1, verse 18? The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. Now, let me define that word, too. You remember me telling you often that there are two words for no, K-N-O-W, in, uh, in Greek, though we only have it as one word in English. And the word that's not here it would, is the factual word two plus two is four, four plus four is eight. There are just certain facts we have to know. Then there's a word which means kind of intuitively you know this, innately you know this. You just know some things and you've always known it all your life. I've often illustrated it by if you ask a two-year-old who your daddy is, they're going to point to daddy, but if you said, how do you know that? He doesn't know it. I mean, he knows it, but he can't tell you how. He's his daddy. And that's the word that is used here and often in the New Testament for this kind of thing. Let me give you an example. And I think what Paul is saying here is that I, this is in my DNA, Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what I know. This is what I give out. In 1 John 5, beginning in verse 19, he uses this word a number of times. Oida is the word, O-I-D-A. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in wickedness. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. You know where else he uses it? If if you ask me, are you a believer, I would say, yes, I am. And if you said, do you know so? (laughs) I would use this word because in 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know, oida, that you have eternal life. Nobody has to tell you. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to go through a mathematical equation. When you've been born again and that has happened to you, you know it. And so he uses this word here so that we may know intuitively these things. You know, um, this week, um, Kent, I think you you sent this around. Uh, It's an old story about people dying in the service. You know, at a church, there was a plaque about servicemen who who were members of the church who had died while in military service. But the pastor was explaining it to a little boy. These are the people who died in the service. And the little boy said, was that the morning service or the evening service? You know, you remember that kind of story. (laughs) We let me say we we just updated our our great poster over here with Milburn's picture on it. And I thought, I looked at it again this morning even, and thought, just in the last year, we have lost five great people out of our congregation. And you know what? Those people had an intuitive knowledge of heaven. These were people that were ready to go on to the Lord. Uh, And when we all get to heaven, (laughs) you know, that's what they believe. That's That's what they did. They had an intuitive knowledge, and the doctor, the nurse, or anybody else couldn't convince them otherwise. I'm ready to go. I remember Kathy saying that in the, in the hospital. Well, you know, the doctors were talking this and that. She just stopped and said, I, I just want you to know, this is what's happening here, <laughs> you know. She's the patient. This is what's happening here. I'm getting ready to go to heaven, basically, is what she said. Let me give it to you, Let me give it to you in a sad but negative way. We saw this week in the news a very immoral man commit suicide in prison. We have also seen murderers pick up guns and go into some place and start shooting people up, knowing that they're going to be shot and die before they ever get out. You know what they don't know intuitively? They don't know about life after death. It's hard to feel sorry for a person like that. But can you imagine ending your own life because you think it's so bad here? And Luke 16 says of the man, he in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And all of a sudden realizing, at least while I was there, I had an opportunity to repent and believe and not come to this place. But now I'm here forever with no chance of ever getting out of it because I took my own life. The lack of intuitive knowledge is sad and an amazing thing. Ah, but to have it, (laughs) to know where you're going, and to know what you believe. So he says, I determined not to know anything among you. This is my testimony, Jesus Christ and him crucified. I know it, and I give it to you. So he did. Thirdly, fear it. Now, here, I think the negative is kind of implied when he says, "I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, in other words i didn't I didn't come to you uh, with boasting and self-assurance. I didn't come to you with a lot of pride I could have I could have come up to Corinth after being in Athens, you know, and act, and I could have said, Hey, I'm here." I just preached in the University of Athens to the most brilliant people in the world, and now I'm here to speak with you. (laughs) No. He says, rather, I was in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Let let me tell you about those three words. Weakness, asthenia, means sickness. We often have it translated in the New Testament as sick. I had a sickness in my stomach. I mean, I was weak enough to be sick fear you know phobia i had this phobia of what might happen and then thirdly trembling a tremor the 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 greek word tremor was literally uh, uh, there was a tremor going on inside me can you imagine the great apostle paul coming to preach at Corinth like that i was i was sick i was trembling i was afraid (laughs) he used the same expression to the Philippian church, in Philippians 2.12, when he said, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation, you know the words, with fear and trembling. Do it with fear and trembling, for it is God." which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And I think to myself, well, then why should I be afraid or why should they approach their life with fear and trembling if it's God that's in you doing this great work? Well, the fear of God, as I see it in the, in the Scripture, has a lot of, fas- there's a lot of avenues to the fear of God. One of them, which we ignore, is there's something to be afraid of before God. I mean, that's not the whole picture, but there's a part of it where you just need to be afraid of the one who created the whole world and holds your life like a thread. But another aspect of the fear of God, and I think Paul refers to here, is the fear of living without the power of God on your life. The the fear of being a Christian, but your prayers go nowhere. The, to Paul, the fear of coming to preach to you and God not blessing it? I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid that could happen to me. So he writes, you know, to, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power, in the Holy Ghost, in much assurance. That's how it came. You know, folks? I have preached in word only, and so has everybody who's ever preached. Or you who have ever taught a lesson have some time of taught in word only. You know, you, you say the right things, you have good information, you're saying the truth, and people can be blessed by that uh, regardless, but you walk away saying, Lord, why wasn't that blessed? Lord, why was there not any power there? Why, was there not, why did it not change anybody? And I tell you, I I have preached in word only uh, uh, often myself and anybody that preached has. And I hate it. And I say, Lord, don't let that ever happen again because it's not a good feeling. And I think Paul came and said that uh, I... It, it, in in fear and trembling that I might preach without the power of Christ upon me, without the blessing of God behind this message. All good people will hear it and learn, and they'll be blessed because it's the word of God. But can the Spirit do His work in people's hearts through me? And folks, I'm just saying, fear this thing in your Christian life. Do do you not have any power of God behind your words? Do your prayers not matter? Does no one care about your witness? No power of God in your life? Fear it. Tremble before it, Paul says. Fourthly, and that is demonstrate it. Well, here he says in a long verse, my speech and preaching, was not with enticing or persuasive, enticing enticing words, of man's wisdom. In other words, I didn't try to manipulate you. I didn't come and just make a flowery big speech. I didn't prepare a sermon just with a lot of laughs and a lot of tears and a lot of emotion in it. I didn't just do that. I wanted to demonstrate something, and I wanted to demonstrate uh, the spirit and the power of God. So verse 4 kind of follows verse 3 uh, in, a, in a way, doesn't it? Well, here this, this word demonstrate means to set forth, to point out something, to prove something, to hold it forth. I'm going to demonstrate this to you. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians 4 and, uh, and verse 9, uh, he uses this word in kind of an interesting way. He says to this church, I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, has, has made a demonstration about us, the apostles, as it were, appointed unto death, for we are made a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. God took the apostles and said, I'm going to set them out here as a demonstration it's like a spectacle, and by the way, the, the word spectacle is the word theater in Greek. Like somebody on a stage, like somebody that everybody's looking at. Here are my apostles, and I'm going to let you persecute them. I'm gonna, they're going to preach to you, but you're not going to like it, and in the end, you're going to kill them, but here they are, a demonstration of my spirit and my power. And Paul's reminding the church, we were like that, you know. We were like that in our early days. We had this demonstration. As a matter of fact, uh, lem, you know, in, in Athens, there, good people differ on this point of view. But I think I see it that in Acts chapter 17, he's at Athens, and we often use this speech on Mars Hill as a model of preaching and a model of presenting the gospel. And then Paul leaves Athens with no church, maybe one or two converts, that's it, and goes down the road to Corinth where the doors are open and the power of God is displayed, a great church is left behind. And I think I think he's saying there's a much, there was much more of a demonstration of the spirit and power here in Corinth than there was back there in Athens. I think it's a mistake of us to always use the Athens, uh, the Athenian example for preaching rather than the Corinthian example. Well, let me read in Acts 18 when he got to he got to Corinth. Acts 18:8 it says, "Now Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his house. Many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were all baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in a night by a vision, here in Corinth, and, and the Lord says." Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. I I mean, I see a great door and effectual open there for him. And he says, you know how that I came with this demonstration uh, of the Spirit and of power to you. You know, at some point, folks, we need to be willing to put ourselves out there as a spectacle, too. We, we need to be willing at some point to say, Well, here I am, Lord. If you need me to speak, I'll speak. If you need me to go, I'll go. If you, if you need me to do this, though it's uncomfortable, and I, naturally I wouldn't do it, but if you need me out there to be this demonstration, this spectacle like somebody on a stage, I'll do it. That's the, it w- that's the way it was when you were first saved. See, That's the way it was when you were a young Christian, when, when you had that vitality and that, and that courage among you. And so we need it again. And then let me lastly point out in verse 5, stand on it then. On this testimony of God, stand on this. That, I said all of this, that your faith should Not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I know in the newer version it has that your faith is not in. The word stand is not there. It's implied, but that's what it means. Your faith should not be in the wisdom of men. Your faith should be in in the power of God. Stand on it. Have a foundation for what you are and, and what you believe. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. Or 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Watch, therefore, stand fast in the Lord. So two different times in this book, uh, he also reminds them, Stand on your faith. Stand on the testimony of God. You need to do that. You know know what, you can have the word of God, you can believe it, you can read it, you can study it, and not take a stand on it, can't you? You can have all of that, but it's just for you. You never say it to anybody else, you never interject the scripture into a conversation, you never say, but I believe this, you don't take a stand on it. What's happened in our lives if we don't take a stand on the Word of God? You remember Jude saying this, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should, what is it? Earnestly contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered unto the saints. Earnestly contend. That is something we need to do. Or remember Galatians one uh, 10 where Paul says this for do i now persuade men or god do i seek to please men for if i please men i'm not the servant of christ and i think too often as as christians and too often as preachers we're trying to persuade god because we want to please men <laughs> we're we want this is what people want to hear lord you can't i need to be i need to say it like this i need to live like this because you know that's what people want to hear and we're trying to persuade god so that we can please men rather than persuading men so we can please god and paul says if that's what i do i'm not the servant of god and i wonder folks Are we not the servants of God because we don't stand on the testimony of God like we should? I don't know about you, but I want to finish my course with joy, as Paul said when he got done with his journeys, that I may finish my course with joy and the ministry God's given to me. God's given you a life, a testimony. God's given you a path to walk. Maybe it's been hard. Maybe it's been easier. I don't know. I know you as a group... Pretty much, but but uh, you know, God put a path before you and ask you to walk in it. Can you do it with joy? I I want to keep my dedication fresh. I hope you do too. And I, it, it's harder as we get older. It's harder as things are more comfortable I guess you you have a long testimony behind you what what do I need of more testimony for I don't know what it is you know but I want that freshness again I I want that boldness again and I want the testimony of God to characterize my life to the very end press toward the mark and that's got to be the finish line the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus do that Stand on the testimony of God. Stand now with me if you will. And as we're standing, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. and We're going to pray and ask him to speak to our hearts about these things, and then we're going to sing a song. Now, Father, passages like this challenge us, but we must admit to you that they challenge us because of where we fail. We read the great words of of your apostles like Paul, and and what a life! What a what a demonstration of the power of God he was. And we know we're not Apostle Paul's, but we are people. We're children of God. We have we have a ministry that you've given us. And so Father, help us. The testimony of God is there's nothing more important in this world than that, and yet we can talk about everything but that. It seems. So Father restore in us that joy of salvation, restore in us that, that uh, freshness, that earnestness that we had uh, years ago. And if we have lost that, Father, build it up again in us. May we be effective witnesses, servants, and even speakers in your name because of this. So as we sing this song, speak to our hearts and burden each of us in the way that we should be burdened. Draw us to yourself and, and cure us in this way. And may Jesus Christ be glorified by it. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.